The True Crime Podcast Festival is coming up in Dallas, Texas in August this year. I have information in the show notes about it and where you can buy tickets. It's a great time to come meet your favorite podcasters, sit down, talk about cases. I know that Josh from True Crime BS will be there, Nina from Already Gone, Robin from The Trail Went Cold. Of course, I'm going to be there. I'm excited to meet the host from LA Not So Confidential and also Military Murder. I've talked to the host on the phone before, but we've never met in person, so it's very exciting. There is a full list of the podcasts coming on their website, and they're also expanding to include paranormal podcasts and other adjacent genres, so I'm excited to announce that Pleasing Terrors with Mike Brown will be there. If you want tickets and more information, click the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to see you there. Sophie Sergi was visiting friends in Fairbanks when she was found murdered in a dorm at the University of Alaska. The case went cold until the Golden State Killer was caught using genetic genealogy, and Alaska state troopers wondered if it would work in this case. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to this week's episode of Crime Lines. Just a heads up, next week is my scheduled week off. I will be releasing the monthly Patreon bonus episode. So if you are on Patreon or you're an Apple subscriber, you will get an episode. But I did want to let everyone know because I do get questions on social media about when the episode is coming whenever I take a week off. I don't take many, but I do want to announce them when I do. The case we're covering today is the most requested MMIW case I have ever gotten over the years. I think it's because there was an arrest made not long before I started focusing on more MMIW cases, so it was in the news and people were sending it to me. The trial was delayed and delayed and delayed some more, but now that it has wrapped, we can get into this case. Like I mentioned in the intro, the major breakthrough of genetic genealogy in solving the Golden State Killer case pushed this cold case towards resolution. And for this week's after show, I'm talking with Paul Holes, who began working on the East Area Rapist cold case back in the late 1990s, and he followed the case through to seeing it solved. He has a memoir coming out this week, so most of our conversation is about his book, and I will also include a review in the after show. So watch for that in the feed on Wednesday. And I've also reached out to a podcast I want to give a shout out to called War Cry Podcast. It is hosted by Indigenous women, and they cover cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people, but they also discuss issues and ideas and have guests on. They really educate. So go check out War Cry Podcast, and hopefully we can get our schedules aligned for them to be guests on an after show soon. But for today, let's get into this case. It takes us to Alaska, and though this crime occurred in Fairbanks, the victim, Sophie Sergi, was from a small community called Pitka's Point. 
And when I say small, I mean about two dozen families and 130 total residents. Pitka's Point Traditional Council is a federally recognized tribe along the Yukon River. Like a lot of communities in Alaska, it is connected to a few others by road, but mostly you have to fly in and out from a small airport. In the Sonia Ivanov case, I mentioned her hometown of Unalakli being at the northern border of the Yupik. Pitka's Point is south of there, and it is in the traditional land of the central Yupik. I do usually discuss history at the beginning of these episodes, and today I want to do something a little different. Since we did cover a bit about the area's history in the Sonia Ivanov episode, which was fairly recent, I want to talk a little bit about the language. This information all comes from a handbook developed by the Alaska Native Language Center, and it was designed for teachers. It will be linked in my sources. While the languages used by Alaska Natives are related, they are not dialects of the same language, and they are not mutually intelligible. The difference between the languages can be compared to two Romance languages or two Germanic languages. Just because someone speaks, say, Italian, it doesn't mean they understand Spanish, even though they may be able to decode a few similar words. The Yupik have five languages that are distinct from each other. Three of the languages are traditionally spoken in Siberia and two in Alaska. When you see Yupik spelled with the apostrophe between the P and the I, that means it's referring to the Central Alaska Yupik language, which is what we are going to discuss, and so I'm just going to call it Yupik going forward. Yupik was not initially a written language. Everything was passed down orally until the beginning of the 19th century. It was missionaries who decided to make a written form so that they could translate the Bible and various prayers. So the first written form of Yupik used the Cyrillic alphabet since these were Russian Orthodox missionaries. This Russian influence was picked up on by one of my listeners. After I covered the Sonia Ivanov case, I was asked on Facebook about why she had a Slavic name. You'll see that here too with Sophie Sergi. And that's the influence of early Russian colonization of what we now call Alaska. After Alaska went from Russian hands into American hands, the written language was changed to use Roman letters. So modern written Yupik uses Roman letters. The American English pronunciation of those letters was more or less matched with Yupik sounds to form the written system. But Yupik has some sounds that don't have an English equivalent. One example is that they have a sound that is similar to the French R. Fortunately, in this case, they don't have a sound like the American English R. So the R in Yupik represents the former sound. A bigger issue was with the K sound. In English, we have one sound, but in Yupik, they have two. One is made towards the front of the mouth, like in English, and one is made farther back. Those of us unfamiliar with the language would be hard-pressed 
to hear the difference, but it can completely change the meaning of the word. At first, the missionaries just used the letter K to represent both of these sounds. Later on, to fix the issue in the modern written UPIC, they switched to using a Q to represent the K that is produced further back in the mouth. So if you see UPIC written, you will see a lot more Qs than we usually see in languages that use Roman letters. And though written UPIC was originally developed and taught in order to teach people the Bible and convert them to Christianity, the UPIC quickly adapted it to personal and secular use. And for many years, the UPIC continued to use their own language in church, home, and at school. But then the American educational system came in and things shifted to insisting everyone use English only. The schools stopped translating materials for the students, and it really is startling how quickly a language can dwindle in use when you're cutting off the next generation from it. But Central Alaskan UPIC has held on. It is the most spoken indigenous language in Alaska. There are 21,000 people who are Central Yupik, and about half of them speak their native language. Though modern written Yupik uses Roman letters that represent more or less similar American English phonetics, that really is where the similarities end. The grammar and pretty much every other feature of language is different. Even loan word use is limited. There are only around 60 loan words from English that have changed to match UPIC, things like TV and potato. But UPIC has several hundred loan words from Russian, though most have been so integrated into the language that you wouldn't notice unless you were an expert in the language. This isn't unlike English words like patio, vanilla, and canyon that are Spanish alone words, or bureau or menu, which are from French. We don't even think about how they fit into English because they've just been part of the language for so long. I don't know how many of my listeners are at the intersection of true crime and linguistics, but if you're one of them, you're welcome. And now it's time to get into the case. Sophie Sergi was born and raised in Pitkas Peak to a Yupik-speaking family. She was an exceptional student, and all of the reporting uses the same phrase for her, a role model. She was an honor student in high school and represented her school district in academic competitions. In 1990, Sophie received a full scholarship to the University of Alaska Fairbanks from British Petroleum. She was pursuing a degree in marine biology, and she participated in the Alaska Native Studies program, being one of the most eager students they had ever seen, and she particularly loved learning traditional dancing. For those who aren't aware, I donate monthly to a charity or an organization that directly benefits Indigenous people. Because of Sophie's love for the Alaska Native Studies program at UAF, this month's donation was sent to the UAF's Festival of Native Arts, which is an annual festival providing cultural education 
through sharing traditional Native dance music and arts. After two years at UAF, Sophie had to take a year off for a couple of reasons, but the primary one was that she needed some serious orthodontic work, which included jaw surgery. It was going to be very expensive, so she went home so she could work to have insurance that would cover some of it, and then she could earn the money to pay for the rest. She planned to return to school for the fall semester in 1993, once all of that was taken care of. But I'm sure you can imagine that the 100-person town of Pickas Point doesn't have an oral surgeon and an orthodontist in town. So Sophie had to travel to and from Fairbanks for treatment. On Friday, April 23, 1993, 20-year-old Sophie flew from Pitkas Point to Bethel to Anchorage. She stayed with a family friend in Anchorage before flying to Fairbanks the next day. She was spending Saturday through Monday with her friend Shirley, who lived on campus at UAF in Bartlett Hall. Sophie had an appointment on Monday with the orthodontist, and then she would fly home. On Saturday, Sophie ran some errands while in Fairbanks and then spent the rest of the time hanging out with friends. That was pretty similar to her Sunday in Fairbanks as well. On the evening of Sunday the 25th, with three friends, Sophie went out to see a movie and then she went to Murphy Dome, which is an old military base that's been turned into a wreck area. They watched the sunset and one of them took a photo of Sophie. It's one that would become really well-known in this case. She's wearing a blue jacket, she has her arms outstretched, and just has a big smile. It is the last photo taken of her. Around midnight, those friends dropped Sophie off at the dorm that she was staying at, and she, Shirley, and Shirley's boyfriend Noah all ordered pizza and hung out in Shirley's second-floor room. Sophie went out to the commons area to get a drink and then was back in Shirley's room for a few minutes before saying she was going to go outside to smoke. Shirley told Sophie that it was too cold outside, but that she could smoke in the dorm bathroom near the exhaust vents in the tub room. The way the dorm bathrooms were set up was that there was a space for toilets and then shower stalls. And then, in a small room right next to the shower stalls, was a room with a bathtub. The entrance to the room had a door, so it is to some degree a bit isolated. While Sophie was out smoking, Shirley and Noah decided to head to his dorm room, where they were going to spend the night while Sophie was in Shirley's room. Shirley left a note on the door to let Sophie know that they had left. This was around 1.30 in the morning. At around 8.50 in the morning on Monday, April 26th, Shirley headed back to her dorm room, and the first thing she noticed was that the note she left for Sophie was still on the door. She went into her room and was surprised to find that everything looked exactly the way it was when she left. It didn't look like Sophie had slept there, and all of her things were in the same place. At some point that day, Shirley was concerned enough that she called the orthodontist and found out that Sophie had never made it to her appointment. 
The orthodontist had also called Sophie's family to let them know that she never showed. So by about midday, people were becoming aware that Sophie Sergi was missing. It wasn't long after that, around 2.40 in the afternoon, that two custodians went into the bathrooms on the second floor of Bartlett Hall to clean. One worked on the toilets while the other went to clean the bathtub and showers. The cleaner that went into the tub room noticed that the shower curtain was closed, which was unusual because it was generally open when no one was actually taking a bath. She pulled the curtain back and saw a young woman lying in the bathtub with blood around her. The cleaner screamed and ran out of the bathroom. She saw a student named Jennifer walking down the hall, and in a panic, she tried to explain what she saw. Jennifer could not understand her, so she brought Jennifer into the tub room. That's when Jennifer saw the body, and she left the bathroom to get help. The UAF campus police came in. They confirmed that the woman was dead and then secured and guarded the scene until the Alaska State Troopers from the Fairbanks Detachment could come in. And the troopers also called in the crime lab, which is located in Anchorage. It's a quick hour flight, so they were there the same day. One of the first things done was to attempt to identify the victim. They went door-to-door to check on the students, though many were not there because it was final exam week. With the police presence at the dorm, it got around the campus and Shirley heard about something happening at her dorm, so she went to see what was going on. Of course, she couldn't get in because it was secured, but she told them at the door that her friend was missing. She hadn't been able to get in touch with her that whole day. So they let Shirley go into her dorm room where she found Sophie's ID, showed it to the troopers, and that's when they confirmed that their victim was Sophie Sergi. At the crime scene, they discovered that the murder had occurred in the room and more specifically in that bathtub. There was remarkably little forensic evidence elsewhere, like on the doors, in the trash cans, or even on the floor. It was described as a very clean crime scene. Sophie was found dressed. However, her pants were pulled down and her sweater and the cup of her bra were pushed up. She was lying on her back with her legs together and bent to the left. As for the cause of death, they couldn't tell immediately. She did have wounds to her face, which would turn out to be a few stab wounds. After they pulled her body from the tub, they found that she was shot in the back of the head. The autopsy would confirm the weapon was a 22 caliber gun, and this was the cause of death in spite of her other injuries, which included being stabbed, being hit with a blunt object, being gagged with a ligature, and also possibly being shocked with a stun gun. 
Sophie's clothing and hair were damp, and they believed the killer turned on the water to try and wash away evidence. But he didn't manage to wash away all of the evidence. The autopsy also found that Sophie was sexually assaulted, and they did a full sexual assault forensic evidence collection. However, because Alaska's state lab was not set up to run DNA in 1993, these swabs were stored. The level of violence was significant, so the investigators canvassed the dorm to see if anyone heard anything. It would have been strange for Sophie to be attacked, raped, and then shot without anyone hearing screams or scuffling or the gunshot. They did find a few students who heard and or saw something that night that they didn't piece together was significant until after Sophie's body was found. One was a first-year student named Vanessa, who said she went into the bathroom that night to take a late shower after having studied for finals. She saw the light was on for the tub room, which was a little odd because she thought no one used it. She was taking a shower on the other side of the wall from the tub room, and she did hear some noise. She described it as a rustling noise and then also a popping sound that she thought almost sounded like a firecracker. Another student named Jennifer also heard weird noises. Like a lot of people that night, she was staying up late studying for finals and she started to get tired, so she decided to take a shower to see if it would wake her up. Jennifer did not go into the same bathroom Sophie was found in. She went into the west bathroom, whereas Sophie was on the east side. However, these bathrooms do share a wall. Jennifer said she heard someone enter the east bathroom, and she then heard a loud thud. She heard murmuring voices, but couldn't tell what they were saying. She couldn't even really tell how many people were talking. She assumed it might be a couple sneaking into the bathroom for some privacy. The third witness was a woman named Melanie. Her room was across the hall from the door to the east bathroom. She said at some point after midnight, she was in her room with her door open, and she heard a loud sound come from the bathroom. She described it as a metal lid hitting concrete. That's what it sounded like. But she said there wasn't an echo and the sound was muffled. She didn't think much of it, and about 45 minutes later, she went in to use the bathroom. As she was washing her hands, she saw a man come out of the tub area and walk out the bathroom door. At the time, Melanie gave a description of a tanned, olive-skinned man around 5 foot 8 with dark hair. She said he was not Alaska Native, but at the time, she didn't think of him as white either. Now, the vast majority of what we have discussed so far was not released at the time. The investigators did say they found fingerprints, hair, and other evidence. And they said they suspected the killer was familiar with the campus and fit in there. But that's about all they said. This was enough, obviously, though, to set the campus on edge. 
A killer was walking among them. Dozens of students moved out of Bartlett Hall immediately. The school came up with some additional safety measures, including installing telephones in every dorm room and hiring desk attendants in the lobbies of the dorms to check people in and out of the buildings at night. This is something UAF used to have. They used to have personnel in the dorm lobbies, but they cut it from the budget in 1989 to save some money. And in spite of having problems with unauthorized people being in the dorms, they never brought back the added security. So Sophie's family sued the school for negligence since they knew there was a safety issue and they didn't fix it. In one instance, in 1991, a soldier from nearby Fort Wainwright entered the dorm on the UAF campus and attempted to rape a student. Two months before Sophie's murder, in another instance, a man was arrested after he was found in a bathroom on Bartlett's fourth floor completely nude. The fourth floor, like the second, was an all-female floor. And then around that same time, a student accused two basketball players of rape, again, in Bartlett Hall. So Sophie's mother, Elena Sergi, sued, basically saying that UAF knew there was a need for someone at the front desk of the dorms, and they didn't implement it. They knew Bartlett Hall was seen as a party house where people could come and go freely, and the lack of security rose to the level of negligence. Holding the university accountable was one reason Elena filed this lawsuit. But like we've seen in other cases, there was another reason. She wanted more information. She wanted to know more about the police investigation into her daughter's murder. The police had been so tight-lipped. Like I said, most of what we just talked about, which wasn't even that much, wasn't released publicly at this point. So Elena wanted the state to turn over files from the investigation, saying they were necessary for her lawsuit. And UAF said the same thing. They needed the files to defend themselves. They asked the judge to either put the civil suit on hold until the criminal case was solved or let them see the files. There was a lot of back and forth with this lawsuit, largely out of the public eye. In the end, it was reported that they had a closed settlement hearing and no one ended up getting a look at the files. The truth was there were not a lot of leads coming in. And while the police certainly thought the person was familiar with the dorms, they weren't sure that better security would have kept him out. While the floors of Bartlett Hall were not co-ed, the building itself did house men and women. Sophie stayed with her friend on an all-girls floor, but the floor above them was a men's floor. It was just as likely the person who raped and killed Sophie lived in the building and had a reason to be there. That was just as likely as if it was an outsider. In early 1997, state troopers launched a website asking for information on Sophie's case and also any tips on other cases that may be similar to hers. At the time, they did not believe Sophie's rape and murder 
would have been a singular event. They believed this was a person who was a serial rapist or serial killer or someone who was becoming one. Since there were no other similar crimes that occurred in Alaska, they thought that this person may have left the state, and that was a big part of why they wanted to get the case on the internet. Maybe someone would know about a similar case in another part of the country and call the tip in. This was not successful, but I do remember 1997 well. The sounds of a dial-up modem still haunt me. So it's just interesting for me to think about the police using the internet to get word out about a case before Google even launched. Back in 1997, the internet was not what it is today. But this wasn't the only emerging technology they had at their disposal. In May of 2000, swabs from Sophie's body were run and a male DNA profile was found. It was uploaded to CODIS and there was no match. In 2002, a cold case unit was created and Sophie's case was one of the first that they reviewed. Within about a year and a half, though, all of their leads were exhausted. Another cold case investigator was assigned to the case in 2009, and he flagged a man named Nicholas Dazer as someone to speak with again. Nicholas lived on the third floor of Bartlett Hall, and he had been interviewed along with everyone else at the time of the murder. And the reason they wanted to talk to him again was that he was a student security guard at the time, and he was on duty the night Sophie was killed. He actually helped secure and guard the scene as they waited on troopers to arrive the next day. But it wasn't just proximity to the crime scene that flagged him on this re-examination of the case. The cold case detective realized that Nicholas had been fired from that security job later on because he was caught with a gun in the dorms. When Nicholas was asked about this gun in 2010, he admitted he had it, but it wasn't a 22 like the murder weapon. He did mention his roommate Steve had a 22, but he denied he knew anything about Sophie's murder. From what other people have said, students having guns wasn't uncommon due to how common hunting is in the area. So it wasn't immediately an obvious lead to follow up on. They basically took Nicholas's DNA, it wasn't a match, and they moved on. Now that detective retired and a new one took over in 2018. And something else happened in 2018. One day before the 25th anniversary of Sophie Sergi's murder, 3,000 miles away, the Golden State Killer was arrested using genetic genealogy. Genetic genealogy is taking an unknown DNA profile and uploading it into a family history website that people use to connect with long-lost family members or to find out more about their family origins. After it's uploaded, they take the closest family matches and build out a family tree to see if any known relative could possibly be a match. That's what they used to identify Joseph D'Angelo as a rapist and serial killer in California. The cold case detective in Alaska looked more into this process to see if any of the cold cases on his desk would be good candidates. 
he realized that Sophie's case was one that might work because they did have a good DNA sample. And they were confident it came from the killer because it was found in her vagina and believed to be from rape. So he reached out to Parabon Nanolabs, who completed the genetic analysis in October 2018. By December 2018, they had narrowed in on a woman who was a second-degree relation to the source of the DNA. This means either grandmother, grandson, aunt, nephew, or possibly half-siblings. Looking at this woman's family tree, they found a man living in Maine who was the one possible matched relation. He was her nephew, and his name was Stephen Downs. And Steve Downs, it turned out, was the roommate of the student security guard. He lived one floor above where Sophie was murdered at the time of the killing, and according to his roommate, he owned a twenty-two, the same caliber as the murder weapon. Steve had been born in Maine and went to UAF in the fall of 1992, so he arrived during the time Sophie was taking her year off. Steve had been questioned alongside everyone else in the dorm at the time of the murder, but he said he knew nothing. After he graduated, he returned to Maine, and in 2018, he was working as a nurse in Auburn. In February of 2019, the police in Maine made contact with Steve, while the Alaska investigators were making arrangements to travel. When he was questioned, Steve said he did remember the murder because who could forget something like that happening in your dorm? But he said he didn't know the victim. When they showed him a picture of Sophie, he said he recognized her, but just from the flyers and from the media that happened after her murder. They asked Steve if he remembered where he was on the night Sophie was killed, and he said he was very likely with his girlfriend who lived on the fourth floor. He said he didn't remember going down to the second floor at all that night. He insisted he didn't know anything about Sophie's murder and said a few times that he always suspected it was a soldier from Fort Wainwright who was responsible. The next day, the authorities executed a search warrant on Steve's home and then took swabs for DNA comparison. On February 15th, 2019, it was proven a match, and Stephen Downs was arrested. He was charged with two counts, one for murder and one for rape. Elena Sergi attended the arraignment by phone with the assistance of a UPIC interpreter, and she heard Stephen Downs plead not guilty. This case then took a long time to go to trial. The main delay was the pandemic. When the courts reopened, they had to play catch-up, and everyone whose trial was canceled in 2020 went first, and that meant it pushed everyone else's trials out even further. And it was during that time, during that delay in 2021, when Elena Sergi passed away. So while she learned that an arrest was made, that a DNA match was found, she didn't live to see the trial. 
The strongest evidence against Steve was the DNA, so of course, that's exactly what the defense was going to attack first. But they also wanted to introduce some alternative suspects. They had a list of them, 16 of them, in fact. But like we've discussed in prior episodes of Crime Lines and in Patreon episodes, there needs to be a reasonable connection between the alternative suspect and the crime before the defense can start pointing fingers. The judge allowed in three of the 16 people the defense wanted presented. One was Steve's roommate, Nicholas. Another was a man named Gregory, who may have been the person seen coming out of the bathroom. And then there was a third student named Kenneth, whose sister claimed he confessed to her. We will get to all three of them in more detail when we get to the defense's case. I did want to mention them at the top because they do come up in some of the defense's cross-examination of prosecution witnesses. Like when one of the lead investigators testified about interviewing various students and the transcripts of these interviews were provided. The defense asked the investigator about the transcript of Kenneth's interview in particular. In it, the officer told Kenneth that someone saw him near the bathrooms. Kenneth being seen near the bathrooms doesn't show up anywhere else, so it seems odd that they asked him this question if he wasn't seen near the bathrooms. But the investigator said it was likely no one saw him, and this was just made up to try to trick Kenneth into saying more or to see his reaction but that isn't in the transcript and it's not in the notes. So it does feel like there's a question here for the jury. Did someone see Kenneth coming out of the bathroom or being near the bathroom or not? Stephen Downs' girlfriend at the time, a woman named Catherine, also testified. She said that Steve and some other friends were all in her fourth floor dorm room that night watching movies but people were coming and going from the room all night, and that included Steve. So while his alibi of, I was in my girlfriend's dorm room, wasn't a lie, it wasn't like he showed up and sat there all night. And Catherine was sure he left at some point because another student tried to kiss her. She was sure that Steve, her boyfriend, wasn't in the room at that point. Another person testified they saw Steve shortly before the time Sophie was likely murdered, and he was in the dorm stairwell, not in Catherine's room. One of the witnesses from the night who had come forward right away, Melanie, had interesting testimony. She was the one who saw a man come out of the tub area around the time Sophie was believed to have been murdered. Melanie described the man initially as having darker skin and not being white, but she testified at the trial that her assessment was not accurate. She explained that she was from a small village. She just did not have a lot of experience outside of her community. The man could have been white, just with an olive complexion and dark hair. Melanie also said she initially told the police that the man appeared to be five foot eight, but that was just an estimate. She was leaning over the sink at the far end of the bathroom when she saw him, and she could have been wrong about the height. 
Melanie did testify that the man was not wearing a white t-shirt, which was notable because the witness who saw Steve Downs in the stairwell said he was wearing a white shirt. The bottom line was that Melanie's description of the man coming out of the tub room doesn't match Steve Downs, even if we give some room for interpretation with height and race. She estimated the man at five foot eight. Steve was six foot two. That's a significant difference. Steve also didn't match in skin tone or hair color. Steve had light skin and fair hair. I feel pretty confident that the man Melanie saw was not Steve Downs, which doesn't mean he didn't do it. I'm just saying it's a possibility that someone else knows what happened and didn't come forward. But whether a witness can place Steve at the scene or not, we cannot ignore the DNA. The DNA that matched Steve Downs was from semen. It wasn't touch DNA that could have been transferred by a third party. The lab didn't have Steve's DNA in the lab at the time they ran the tests, so it's hard to see how this could have been cross-contamination. The only other explanation that was reasonable was that they had a prior consensual sexual encounter that weekend, except Steve denied knowing Sophie at all. He had the chance to explain any consensual relationship if that was what happened, and he didn't. To drive that home, the state played a recording of the interview with Steve that happened right after they got the genetic genealogy results. He was asked, you didn't know the girl that got killed. He said no. He was then asked, never heard of her and never met her. He again said no. And then he was asked, and you had no contact with her, didn't at all. And he said no. Steve was asked straight out three times in three slightly different ways, and he denied knowing Sophie, knowing of her, and of having any contact with her. And then there is another recorded interview after he was told about the DNA match where Steve denied it could be his DNA. He said there had to be an explanation for it because it just wasn't him. So he again had an opportunity to give a reasonable explanation like a consensual encounter, and he didn't. So if there was not a consensual encounter, there was one that was not consensual. The state tied the rape to the murder by pointing out that no semen was found in Sophie's underwear or on her legs, meaning she didn't stand up again after the attack. She was raped and killed in quick succession, and that links the two crimes. So that's the broad overview of the state's case. Now it's time for the defense case and the three alternative suspects. Let's talk about Nicholas first. He and Steve were roommates at the time. By the time the trial came around, Nicholas was an attorney in Oregon. He testified that he and Steve got along really well and characterized Steve as his best friend at college. They remained good friends even after graduation, with Steve being a groomsman in Nicholas's wedding. At the time of the murder, Nicholas did do security and testified that on the night of the murder, he was patrolling the campus on foot. The next night, he was posted at the dorm stairwell, keeping people from going near the crime scene. 
He said that in the days after, all the security guards were encouraged to pick up as many shifts as possible because they wanted the students to see a strong presence since they were obviously fearful. Nicholas testified that he didn't think a lot about the murder in the years since, but he admitted he did tell the investigators in 2010 that his roommate Steve had a 22 caliber pistol and a switchblade knife. During cross-examination, Nicholas testified that even though he did the security, he wasn't told much about the murder from the police and that he never entered the bathroom. Nicholas was asked about Steve's behavior after the murder and if it was unusual, and Nicholas said no. The defense showed him a 22 that was seized from Steve's house in Maine. The state believed it could have been the murder weapon, but ballistics weren't able to match anything due to the condition of the bullet. Nicholas said he remembered the barrel of the gun Steve owned back in 1993 as having a different barrel shape. On redirect from the state, Nicholas conceded he might be misremembering what the barrel of the gun looked like from nearly 29 years ago. The defense pointed out that even if Steve owned the gun, Nicholas would have been able to use it since they shared a room. And Nicholas, a security guard who was walking around that night for his job, had better access to pass through the women's dorm unnoticed. While the defense was allowed to offer Nicholas as an alternative suspect, they were barred from mentioning that Nicholas was fired due to possessing a gun because that gun was not linked to Sophie's murder. The gun he was caught with wasn't the right caliber to have been the murder weapon. So the second alternative suspect presented to the jury was a man named Gregory who lived on the fifth floor of Bartlett Hall. His roommate testified that Gregory did own a 22 caliber pistol at the time, but also said he hadn't seen Gregory for days leading up to the murder of Sophie. Now, Gregory was a white man with an olive complexion who matched the description Melanie gave for the man coming out of the bathroom. She was shown a lineup in 2004, and she picked two people who she said could have been the man, and Gregory was one of them. The second person was not a suspect or involved in any way. He was what is called a foil, basically an innocent filler photo to add to the array. Even though the witness did pick two people out as possibly being the person, because one of them was Gregory and he lived in the dorm at the time, it makes sense why he was allowed in as a reasonable alternative suspect. Now, the third alternative suspect was a man named Kenneth. He did testify at the trial through video conferencing. In this trial, because of COVID and travel issues, a few witnesses did testify this way. But Kenneth had an added reason to use video conferencing. He was actually in prison, where he is currently serving a sentence for criminally negligent homicide. He pled down from a manslaughter charge. In 2014, Kenneth assaulted multiple people outside of a bar one night. One of the people he punched fell and hit his head, dying of the head injury a few days later. But this wasn't what put Kenneth on the police radar. Initially, he was there because he was a man who was living in the dorm at the time. 
But Melanie said specifically that the person she saw was not an Alaska native, and Kenneth is. But beyond that, Melanie knew Kenneth, and she would have recognized him. So we know he's not the man in the bathroom, but in my opinion, Stephen Downs likely wasn't either. Kenneth was someone who was re-interviewed years later and asked for DNA. Kenneth volunteered to provide this because he said he wanted to help solve a crime against another indigenous person. When the DNA was run, it did not match Kenneth, so he was initially ruled out. But then in 2009, Kenneth was back under suspicion when his sister Karen told the investigators that Kenneth confessed to her. By the time this trial started for Steve Downs, Karen had already passed away, so she couldn't testify, but they had her statement, and Kenneth was asked about it on the stand. He said that he never confessed to his sister. The conversation they had about the crime happened when there was a show or a news program about Sophie's murder. He told Karen that he was a suspect in that murder, but that was it. He never said he killed her. So those are the three alternative suspects the judge allowed the jury to hear about. You know, there were others who the jury didn't hear about. A friend who had a crush on Sophie, who witnesses say acted strangely that night and after. There was another man characterized as a heavy drinker who was shaking and hysterical early in the morning before the body had even been found. He also reportedly owned a gun, a knife, and had cuts on his hands bad enough that he needed stitches. And then there were two men outside the dorm building who were yelling at each other. One of them said, I can't believe you did that to her, and a witness was able to identify one of those men. But the judge didn't allow these men to be presented as alternative suspects because there just wasn't enough to connect them to the crime. The guy who was infatuated with Sophie had a pretty decent alibi. The heavy drinker with the cuts had gotten those cuts a week before, as documented in medical records. The gun he owned wasn't the same caliber as the murder weapon either. As for the two men yelling at each other, the witnesses couldn't agree whether it happened on the night of the murder or the night before. Alternative suspects was one part of the defense case, a pretty big part, but they also wanted to introduce doubt about the DNA evidence. They pointed that the crime scene was pretty contaminated with multiple people, around 20, making it into the bathroom, into the tub room, before crime scene investigators got there. The defense wanted to know how confident the jury was in the DNA results based on collection and storage practices from 1993. The defense said that there just basically wasn't enough of an investigation done at the scene. The DNA found was essentially a few molecules, and it wasn't as solid as the state was claiming. And when you add that in with the other reasonable suspects, it forms reasonable doubt. In their closing argument, they did bring up the possibility of consensual sex, pointing out that none of Sophie's friends knew where she was for a chunk of Saturday night. But like I said, if that's the explanation, the jury heard Steve Downs be given multiple chances to say so, and he didn't. 
the state obviously was relying on the DNA results as evidence of guilt. And they told the jury, you cannot divorce the rape from the murder. Whoever raped Sophie was the person who killed her. In Alaska, unlike many other jurisdictions, the prosecution doesn't actually have to prove premeditation to support a murder charge. They just have to prove intent. So the prosecutor outlined the details of the crime and said it was clear this wasn't an accident. Sophie didn't accidentally die when she was struck, stabbed, and shot. The person who did this to her intended to kill her. The jury took the case and spent four days going over the evidence. Was the DNA appropriately collected and appropriately tested? Was it possible Sophie did have consensual sex with Steve at some point that weekend? And what about Melanie clearly describing someone who wasn't Steve Downs coming out of the tub room? While the DNA does seem like such a slam dunk, it's always nice to see when a jury takes the time to go over the whole case. After 20 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict, guilty. Steve Downs immediately filed a motion for a new trial, citing prosecutorial misconduct, including an accusation that the state listened in on his confidential phone calls with his attorney. The judge denied the motion, saying there was no evidence for this. Steve's sentencing hearing will be held in September, and he is facing up to 129 years in prison for both the rape and murder of Sophie Sergi. His attorney said they plan to continue to appeal and that Steve maintains his innocence. After the verdict, Sophie's brother Alexi said he was relieved. He believed that Stephen Downs was guilty, and he talked to the media about the impact this had on his family for years to come. He talked about how at every big event, his mother Elena would spend some of that time crying that Sophie wasn't there to experience it with them. But even with the pain his family carried for nearly 30 years from her murder until justice, he said he forgave Sophie's killer even before he was caught. Alexi said it is part of his faith to forgive, but he said he will never, ever forget. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.